the stories. Are you being yourself? How am I not myself? myself we live in capitalism its power seems inescapable so did the divine right of kings any human power can be resisted and changed by human beings resistance and change often begin in art, and very often in our art, the art of words. I'm Ira Glass. Welcome to Jackass. It's episode 110 of the Humor and the Abject podcast. I'm your host, Sean J. Patrick Carney. In this episode, I spoke with New York-based writer Elvia Wilk, whose phenomenal collection of essays on ecologies, Death by Landscape, was published in July by Soft Skull Press. I cannot recommend this book highly enough. And I really enjoyed the opportunity to unpack it a little bit with Wilk for the podcast. You can also find Wilk's writing in Freeze, Art Forum, Book Forum, Bomb, The Atlantic, and N Plus One, among so many other publications. She's currently a contributing editor at Eflux Journal, and her debut novel, Oval, was also published by Soft Skull in 2019. Check the episode description for a link to purchase both of her books. Thanks so much for plugging in. Here's my conversation with Elvia Wilk. Elvia Wilk, welcome to Humor and the Abject. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I want to jump right in and talk about your recent collection of essays, Death by Landscape, um, which you described as fan nonfiction and something about that particular phrasing um, really grabbed me the first time that I saw it, which is probably why I immediately asked for uh, a reader copy. Um, But fan nonfiction, I think, is playful and kind of unpretentious and sets this intention that the collection, even though it's heady and kind of paradigm challenging um, and appropriately, like truly weird, uh, it's really accessible. And it's also a pretty fun read. So could you tell me about arriving at that phrasing of fan nonfiction and the decision to foreground it in contextualizing the book? Yeah, I'm glad to hear that the phrase grabbed you. <laughs> that means it's doing something right. Um, hopefully it also grabs fans of fan fiction, mm-hmm. <laughs> which <Yeah>. I love. <laughs> okay. Um, and <laughs> and I was certainly um, inspired by you know the tradition of fan fiction, which is long, 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 um, and implies a sort of deep affection for our source material and also implies, you know, kind of like a um, democratization of material or a spreading of it beyond a single author. So kind of a collective approach to a central story um, that gets distributed among many heads um, and many, um, many ideas and plot lines and, you know, other characters and all sorts of spinoffs can flourish in the realm of fan fiction. And fan fiction is also not (laughs) worried about copyright, at least (laughs) most of the time, Uh unless a fan fiction writer is trying to capitalize on their spinoff, which also happens, Fifty Shades of Grey. Um, However, um, there's something um, fundamentally, um, I guess, um, collective about the idea of fan fiction. And that, those are all things that I find important um, in my writing in general, um, and certainly wanted to think about carrying over when I wrote this book of fan nonfiction. 
um, which is to say that it's um, it draws from the work of an incredible number of other yeah. writers and thinkers and artists and movie makers. It's pretty broad. Um, and all of the works that I'm drawing from and writing about and and people who I'm writing about, I am fans of whether or not I like their work, you know, quote unquote, like, um, yeah, yeah. I'm still obsessed with or invested in it or fascinated by it um, in a really um, personal and intimate way. And so I, I really wanted to emphasize that I don't have any sort of objective stance in relation to this material, that I am um, a subjective individual like we all are, <laughs> and that um, I'm drawn by kind of affinity and curiosity as much as any type of, um, you know, analytic research method. Um, not that those things are opposed, sure, um, yeah. but in fact that I'm, you know, I'm, I'd like to show how they go together um, and how the arc of the book, you know, it sort of begins with what seem like more typical academic uh, approaches or subjects. And then sort of over the course of the narrative, I become more and more drawn into it until um, I am a character in the book myself or I'm my perspective is kind of super evident. And at that point, um, I think the that my role as the fan becomes clear also. Yeah. And that's, so that's kind of this idea of you, you sort of your real life, your fan life or your uh, life as the author, et cetera, starts to kind of bleed like the, the distinction between those two. And that's the third section of the book. You've, you've got it divided into these three. There's the first part is plants, then planets and then bleed. Um, each of which, as you've just mentioned, kind of contains a suite of essays. And were those containers that you wanted to fill through the writing? Did those come first or were they applied later on after you kind of started to organize the structure of it and you realized these are these themes that I'm going to fit sub themes under? Yeah, it's a good question. And it's a little hard to answer. Like I'm sure any writer has a hard time answering these sorts of process things. Or if they don't have a hard time, it's because they superimposed a narrative after the fact. But, uh -huh. um, but these sections did come later in the process. Um, simply as um, as titles or as sort of structuring principles for the table of contents. Um, but the thematic clusters were pretty clear in my mind from the beginning. Um, I just wasn't sure how to distill them into words. Um, that did come later. Um, but there were lots of different um, arrangements that I tried out for the material. Originally, this was meant to be an anthology of essays I had already written, and that quickly became uninteresting to me. And um, and I couldn't help but write a ton of new stuff um, and kind of like drastically rewrite what I had already written mm -hmm. um, so that it became part of a broader narrative. Um, and so that it, you know, when I did come up with these three sections, I did then want things to cohere more concretely around the themes. Um, so then I kind of also rewrote things so that it would have some kind of like, I don't know, density or like that it would orbit around those themes, like each three of them would. Um, and then there's an epilogue, which dangles. <laughs> Could you describe kind of for someone who hasn't read the collection, what is the charge of these three different sections, like plants, planets, and bleed, just kind of, you know, elevator description of what what does each of these entail? Sure. So plants um, begins with um, an analysis of stories um, that I might call ecosystems fiction. That's the name I give them. Um, sort of fiction that 
foregrounds non-human entities and brings the non-human and human into collision, and that specifically um, merges or melds or flips the traditional human protagonist figure with the traditional everything else landscape background. Um, and then I use that idea of ecosystems fiction in an expanded sense sort of throughout the, I guess throughout the book, but specifically throughout this section, um, leading into a conversation about the artificial versus the natural, toxic versus healthy, um, and kind of like looking at the um, erotic potential in the boundary breakdown between humans and non-humans. Um, and then in that um, boundary breakdown um, moment of collision, I enter the work of mystics, the work of, I guess, the life projects of mystics mm -hmm. um, throughout time, um, religious or non-religious, but um, who are having encounters with the natural world or the divine that are beyond the limits of their perception. And then along the lines of perceptual limits, I also talk about um, specifically stories where people try to communicate or empathize with plants. So kind of like another interspecies communication barrier yeah. being imaginatively deconstructed. Yeah, yeah. Um, planets, I don't know if that was elevator length. I'll try to keep this short. <laughs> hey, that was very good for me. Keep it going. Uh, maybe we're in a space elevator. Yeah, exactly. It's a space elevator. I was... <laughs> I mean, it, make, it makes sense. You're about to talk about planets, so it's a perfect transition. Yeah, exactly. A very appropriate. Very good segue. Um, <laughs> planets is about the end of the world or worlds as we know them. Um, whether or not that is the end of the current system of exploitation and extractivism that we live in, or the literal apocalypse that may be coming for us all, um, humans and non-humans alike. Um, I talk about processes of slow violence mm -hmm. and the idea of slow creeping apocalypses that might not be so immediately evident in a moment of um, catastrophe or rupture. Um, I talk about some of my favorite books and movies that deal with um, this like fantasy of something collapsing or exploding all at once and how we might um, react individually as people emotionally and psychologically and physically to that knowledge of impending destruction. Um, and I also explicitly kind of tackle the role of fiction um, to help us deal with, or if not help, then <laughs> at least like um, allow us to construct models for, um, yeah, what it feels like to live at the end of the world. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and I deal explicitly with genre fiction and um, I guess like what, what kinds of genres of fiction could, um, yeah, could properly, um, <laughs> aesthetically <laughs> or in some accurate way depict um this twinned experience of utopia and dystopia which is life i mean life yeah. is never both never just one or the other it's always both um and then the final section bleed um zooms in on to me and my body a lot more um and i talk about my experiences of traumatic recollection mm -hmm. um and the way that um, my body really became a site for me to encounter um, what it means to live with the um, baggage of the past um, and what a sense of the future might be, given that we're all in some sense always reliving um, through our bodies um, 
past traumas. Um, although I do want to say that I question the use of the word trauma. That is a lot of what the section is about. Um, yeah. the, over, the overuse of the word trauma, I should say. I also, in that section, I guess the name most explicitly comes from this um, essay, Ask Before You Bite, which is about a vampire live action role play that I took part in, where mm -hmm. I experienced <laughs> this moment of the vampire bite as a moment of uh -huh. kind of complex power play. And um, I guess like the... Um, it, it incited me to ask questions about um, complicity and domination and, um, you know, what, you know, uh, I keep saying, you know, nobody knows um, what, it, <laughs> <laughs> what it means to allow yourself to be taken over or uh -huh. allow your boundaries to be broken. And again, that like frightening yet erotic um, boundary right. transgression that um, any interspecies encounter might be, and the vampires, of course, and, um, and another species. So that, <laughs> that becomes a figure for me for thinking about interspecies relationships. Um, and in that section, I also deal with kind of um, like um, other, let's say, kinds of like moments of trauma and or discovery um, also those that have been commercialized, um, mm -hmm. like virtual reality um, stories, virtual reality experiences, they're called, in which people, users can experience the secondhand suffering of others. So this becomes an investigation of empathy um, and the role of storytelling and the responsibility of storytelling. And then the final essay in this section is about um, what happened when I tried to do a live action role play of my own previously written novel um, to distribute authorship among a collective of people. So you talked about ecosystems fiction before, and I wanted to ask about uh, the ecosystems body, which is a term that you kind of introduce. It's based on the two body notion central to um, Daisy Hilliard's 2017 book, The Second Body. Um, so what's your interpretation of this uh, metaphysical framework where I have this body right here, like bones and guts and brains and then I have this other body that you're proposing is kind of connected at these different levels um what is the ecosystem's body well I would just tell everyone to read Daisy Hildyard's book before mine because you know <laughs> as a true fan I will always tell you to go yeah. to my source material first uh -huh. she does she does a better job describing this than I could um and she talks about the first body as the body that you um are in constant confrontation with um, the body that has a headache, that falls asleep, that goes to work, that has sex, that watches a movie, and that that body um, is implicated in and tied to ecosystems in, in ways that we can feel and not feel that become very mysterious, very incalculable, and very frustrating, I would add, um, because it's incredibly difficult to imagine how one individual could impact an ecosystem but mm -hmm. what what is an ecosystem if not trillions of individuals um including non-humans um and so knowing that we are part of these systems um means that we are in a constant conflict where we're experiencing our first bodies while being aware of our second bodies and feeling kind of tangentially responsible for what's happening yeah. in that second body so yeah. I I think I, I use the word ecosystems body maybe as like an extension of that idea to talk more broadly about, okay, so, you know, it's not just that I have a 
my body has an influence on a grander scale, it's that I am also part of an ecosystem and that ecosystem is part of me, like the, you know, viruses and bacteria and parasites that live inside of me. That constant friction between those is the, you know, the the feeling of turning the keys in the ignition and knowing that you're a part of a geophysical force on a planetary scale, <laughs> but also that if you don't drive that day, it doesn't change it. Like th- that freaking, yeah, <laughs> out. It's, yeah, it's like a, <laughs> it's a double bind in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you you mentioned uh, earlier that in the um, in the plant section that you're talking a bit about these medieval mystics who are physically communing with divine forces and these kind of ineffable experiences that can't really be explained uh, rationally or theologically. And you're drawing links to philosophers like Simone Weil and also to new weird literature. And I one thing that I really appreciated about that section was your exploration of the kind of tunnel slash tower in uh, Annihilation um, and kind of unpacking through, in Jeff Vandermeer's book the way that that kind of functioned. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that this isn't perfectly analogous because you cite William James's hallmark that a mystic experience is passive, it can't be initiated, but is there's some relationship to mysticism and trying to tap into our ecosystem's body for you? Like, are we, is it a fool's errand because we cannot initiate that? Or are, what's the relationship between those kinds of experiences that can't be kind of explained and perhaps trying to get past that friction that I was just describing of knowing that you're part of this larger ecosystem, but you can't really feel your influence in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the passive active thing is quite, fascinating because um in james's conception and his is sort of the original definition of mysticism that i'm going with or at least starting point for talking about mysticism i don't think there's anything definitive to say but um uh he does say that this is an experience beyond words this is an um yeah ineffable experience in that sense um it can't be brought on on purpose but you might arrive Mm -hmm. at it um, you can't report back from it. It's fundamentally a bodily encounter. Um, and that idea that it's sort of, you know, you might you might create the conditions in which you could have that experience, but that it would not be about human agency, I think is very important because it suggests that um, human agency is not the driver of um, these kinds of encounters, um, whether they be divine encounters or encounters with a plant that you are convinced you can speak to and, mm-hmm. you know, are having a completely, uh, you know, embodied and wild psychedelic experience. Um, you know, there are any number of mystical experiences we could talk about. Um, but I do think also like, if, like talking about the role of the mystic socially can kind of like help illuminate that because um, like that tension between active and passive, because yeah. a lot of mystics kind of recused themselves historically, like I'm talking mostly about medieval mystics when I say this, yeah. recused themselves, medieval Christian mystics mostly. Um, but also there are a lot of like examples of like Muslim mystics who did the same thing. Um, anyway, I can't, simply cannot write a global history, so I don't try. But sure. um, <laughs> but so a lot of these mystics, um, became really isolated, um, spent all of their time in total poverty or self-abnegation. They often tried to reach a state of encounter with divine grace through restricting the body. So like fasting, 
not wearing any clothes, being cold, being miserable, and this kind of like total abs- absenting themselves from like a social fabric. Um, yeah. And through that like extreme isolation and abnegation, they were able to reach higher states of being, uh, or so they've reported, and these like extreme, um, really extreme states of being, like encountering uh, where they felt like they were encountering God. Um, but in that extreme reclusion, I see a possibility for extreme political engagement, right? And like when looking at a figure like Simone Weil, um, that becomes really clear. Like her political engagement was what led to her self-abnegation and her um, mystical um, experiences. Um, all those, although those looked quite different. Um because she felt so strongly about other people's suffering and about the oppression of other people, she was not able to allow herself to eat. And therefore her body became the site of um, a political struggle um, internal to her um, that reflected a political struggle external to her. Um, And so this question recurs for me about whether or not going outside could be an extreme way of re-entering or like, Hmm. do you have to go out to go in? Do you have to um, excuse yourself um, from the political fabric in some way and become extremely hyper-focused on the individual and the body in order then to re-enter and bring back wisdom? Um, And a lot of medieval mystics um, did become people who were sought out for wisdom by others um, or who came back into society and political life in order to report on what they had discovered. Um, and that was a that's that's really how the only reason we know about a lot of them is that they came back to try and talk about it. Sure, yeah. I have no idea if that answered your question, but that's no, one it way. did. It did, and it kind of leads me to. I wanted to ask about this this idea of so uh, beginning with the self before going outside of it, and I, I I'm trying to figure out how to articulate this exactly, but basically like something that seems to have uh, popped up quite a bit in since the COVID-19 pandemic has been this kind of ubiquity of new age griftery. um, (laughs) And and like, and I think that what, what I'm trying to kind of like hit at here is like this, what I liked about the idea of the ecosystem's body is that it's grounded in this kind of like materiality of the real world in this like ecological or uh, like a systems connection to other beings where there's like a symbiosis there's an accountability there's like shared risk in in the future even if we feel kind of impotent in the the direction of that right um, whereas there's this kind of loose uh woo-woo idea of oneness mm-hmm. in in new age that is um though only like a vehicle to get to the self and almost and in, in, increasingly in this kind of like uh, there's a particular brand of like Christian new age that is like enormous on YouTube and with all these influencers that is really uh, about only about the self. There's almost no kind of like social aspect to anything. It's just constant self-improvement and like focusing on the self and that one will kind of uh, transcend beyond that. And I, I, I feel very uh negative about, <laughs> about that like it it drives me nuts yeah. um and i i guess i don't know if you have any 
thoughts about this kind of resurgence of of the new age as you're thinking about medieval mysticism and its relationship to these things and particularly the way that new age has kind of taken this politically very like rightward trend um which i guess is on the one hand surprising on the other hand not at all um (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean i think new age tendencies traditionally do emerge or become heightened at a moment of political extremism. Like I would Mm -hmm. definitely say the same thing happened in the seventies or the sixties and the seventies, um, that those Mm -hmm. who sort of, you know, move to new agey communes or subscribe to a lot of new agey philosophy and principles, um, did find themselves in, um, complicated compromised conservative (laughs) political situations (laughs) like Mm -hmm. um only a few years later there was an extreme backlash both inside and outside of those communities but also like um as you say like the hyper individualism and the dogma that emerges from that kind of like um quote-unquote counter-cultural practice um can only go one direction um, so I do think there is kind of like a historical precedent for the um, horseshoe of the new age yeah. and the like, you know, uh, alt-right that we see now or the, I guess, like mutually reinforcing aspects of both of those tendencies. Um, I think you're right that a lot of it does have to do with individualism. I think a lot of it also has to do with um, looking for, um, let's say, like, you know, you could call them pharmaceutical cures for systemic mm-hmm. ailments, or <laughs> like whether or not you know a new age, um, a new age cure might not be pharmaceutical, but it is. Um, you know, you're looking for generalized spiritual practices, um, aka like um, pills to take that will um, assuage the miseries of being part of late stage capitalism yeah, <laughs> or post capitalism. Yeah rather than any kind of political or systemic or institutional change. Like the idea that self-improvement is the road to world betterment has been pretty like widely shown not to work. I guess. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's interesting to think about these 1960s and 70s communes that a lot of the sort of spirituality was couched in this, uh, I guess, kind of watered down, paganism around nature or communes out in nature and things like that and now i think what is starkly contrasting to me with it being primarily centered around internet culture is that the the material or the physical realities of the planet are completely absent from the conversation in these kind of new age spiritual circles and they are obsessed with extraterrestrials and like fifth dimensional ascension and all things like things that are like not of this planet really Mm -hmm. specifically and yeah yeah it just seems like it's um bleak i think (laughs) yeah and so i mean it makes sense that that immaterial worldview would gel nicely with the types of passive engagement integral to certain conspiracy theory subcultures i mean yeah conspiracies as nouns are very real to be sure but i'm thinking more in the sense about the type of facebook on-ramped consumerist engagement with conspiracy theories that feels more akin to entertainment i.e 
the trust the plan, sit back and enjoy the show, no IRL engagement required yeah. kind of Q-pill theories. <laughs> yeah, conspiracies are real. Yeah. I mean, I often say like, you know, like, you know, a conspiratorial understanding of reality is different than like subscribing to a conspiracy theory or an individual sure. conspiracy. I mean, I guess a conspiracy theory is different than simply a conspiracy, which certainly right. exists. <laughs> like, you have to theorize yes. about it. It's right there in <laughs> <No>. the open. <laughs> yeah there's this i uh i think about like people's interest in cryptozoology and like that i i read this essay by this folklorist or this academic paper or whatever one time and he's talking about there's kind of like these three reasons that um cryptozoology has like has these uh these resurgences of these these obsessions with these strange beings and then it has to do with it it comes back because there's this over mapping of the natural world to a point where like there isn't really any mystery left and that makes people kind of upset um then there's the second part is this kind of like colonial guilt for the extraction of an exploitation of natural resources that are like dwindling and so there's a subconscious thing going on and then the third part is just this like you know reactionary sentiment against expertise and that someone can sort of say, mm -hmm. well, no, we've cataloged all the animals um, and yeah. we have the monopoly on reality. And so there's this kind of like this reactionary framework to that that uh, I think relates very much to <laughs> many of these. Yeah. Uh, a, dis a distrust of uh, uh, any, I don't know, science does a lot of bad things too. I'll, I'll agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, I it's mean, it's done horrible things. <laughs> like, totally. Yeah. I mean, hmm. <laughs> especially science and service of outside uh -huh. interests which is a lot of science um i would totally love to use this opportunity to plug a, a book that came out after i wrote my book so i couldn't write about in it which uh -huh. is called venomous lump sucker it's a novel by this <laughs> okay. british author ned bowman uh -huh. gotta read it it's great and um in it this it's like a very straightforward sci-fi book so to speak but it is definitely taking out taking the piss out of the genre as well um and there's this um global agreement in the book that an animal hasn't functionally gone extinct if it has been completely preserved in its dna profile and all of its behaviors um as a digital copy of itself Okay. But then, of course, um, that means that a company can functionally decide when an animal does go extinct. Um, and also, it can use the digitization of the species as a premise to then kill off the last living animal because it has preserved it forever virtually. So this mm -hmm. kind of like digital copy which we are using already as like a way of trying to back up like rapidly diminishing species mm -hmm. um could actually be the premise to kill them off faster i think is a very very important scenario to consider yeah wow that's that's dark it is <laughs> and it's so it's one of <laughs> it's one of those technological um moments that you talk about in uh the book or, or so the like darko suvin calls this the novum if i'm understanding correctly which is like it could be an ecological disaster or a technological breakthrough or something that kind of mm -hmm. d 
demarcates like a before and after point and frequently in science fiction or other types of literature it's like you refer to it as like the it and that there are stories where the it is like not named or or people know what it is it could be an earthquake an atomic explosion uh, all kinds of different things um but uh something that i was interested in too you mentioned this earlier that that like the apocalypse is is not this singular fantastic explosion event kind of uh that it is rather a series of slow interlocking crises that play out over a long period of time um which is much less satisfying probably um than a big boom and i i've i've heard you describe that both the perception of the apocalypse as like this before and after moment um as leading towards this assumption that there's like a technological solution that can either prevent it or come up with like the device or like the the software or the whatever to fix it as as being a really liberal kind of mm-hmm. uh mindset um and i wonder if for someone listening who isn't used to let's say like a critique of a liberal mindset from a left perspective as opposed to just you know being slammed by right-wing people like what about this techno solutionism is is liberal and why is it perhaps not useful yeah, <laughs> big question. Um, I guess in the book, um, what I mm, argue is that tech solutionism, first of all, has a faulty premise, which is that tech can solve anything <laughs> and that all the problems that yeah. tech has created, more tech could solve. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> not to say that tech couldn't be used to get us out of some traps we've built like of course but um it also is built on the premise um of progress or technologically oriented progress that Mm. we could we are going somewhere better and we can keep going somewhere better if we continue to innovate and disrupt and etc um just um it is also um inherently a corporate idea of progress like Mm -hmm. today we do not have world-changing technology that isn't sponsored by a billionaire um it simply could not scale up to the um planetary level unless somebody is paying for it um that said i am a proponent of non-scalable tech like especially like if i had to talk about solutionism in a positive sense i would say like well pick a small space and you know solve those problems um but i guess that does um indicate my ultimate critique of solutionism which is that nothing is a planetary solution nothing is a one-size-fits-all solution fits all solution and um nothing is a top-down solution or like that a solution won't be any of those things um that one person's vision for the utopia to come or even just the solution to come it's probably not relevant for most everybody else I feel like there's a relationship too between these things and the kind of, um, I guess like faux consciousness that undergirds a lot of the California ideology or what like Douglas Rushkoff calls the mindset, but this idea that uh, you're going to sort of publicly facing, make the world a better place through technology, but that what most of these billionaires are doing is trying to kind of buy their way out of imminent catastrophic events that are the result of their own kind of like extractive greed and things. And, you know, whether they're building bunkers in New Zealand or, or trying to like colonize Mars or whatever, it's basically like, it's like, it's a, yeah. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) they can afford it. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> you uh you um 
you know, you kind of made me think after I read this book about, uh, I guess I hadn't given it a ton of thought before, but sort of wandering through a bookstore and seeing uh, science fiction or speculative fiction next to fantasy and that these are so often relegated to the same genre shelves. Um, And certainly there's plenty of critiques of mainstream science fiction, um, obviously, but it's kind of tough for me to chew over that like Butler or Le Guin or Kim Stanley Robinson are like in the same area as like the Lord of the Rings you know? like, <laughs> and like it's I and I think what I got out of Death by Landscape that was so kind of powerful was this critique that like we have kind of maybe we've been conditioned to understand imaginative interesting futures where like maybe um like gender isn't binary or that renewable resources are simply matter of fact we, we've been trained basically to think of those as, as fantasies and that that mm-hmm. is perhaps why this stuff is put next to it and i just wonder if you could talk a little bit about why you think that is such a natural pairing uh, particularly in this country like why is why is speculative fiction next to fantasy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do spend a lot of time in the book trying to say, okay, well, what is science fiction? What is fantasy? Yeah. What is weird fiction? What is speculative fiction? Like, are these terms useful? Like, and you know, I ultimately say mm-hmm. like, these are points on a, a spectrum. Like there's no such thing as pure anything, but there mm-hmm. are like the historical precedents from which we draw the genre categories. And those historical precedents are important, but they're also important for the way that authors have reacted against them and played with them and perverted them and done really interesting things with them. Um, Like the Le Guin's and the Butler's and the Kim Stanley Robinson's of the world. But I think Kim Stanley Robinson is actually the person who first pointed this out um, in my orbit, um, who said, like, hang on, if we're always talking about climate fiction in as science fiction or as fantasy fiction, then like, why don't we think it's realism (laughs) or like just because it has some hallmarks of genre fiction, we are putting it in the genre category um, even though it looks increasingly like what's happening. (laughs) And um, I think that partially is just like a straightforward problem of the way that books get made and sold and the way that if you're Mm. one kind of author, then you go on that Mm -hmm. kind of shelf. Um, A lot of that is an industry problem and a commercial problem and that's not to be underestimated because that's how people you know that's how readerships are found and created like you're creating your audiences um and so yeah those kind of economic pipelines i think do writers and readers a disservice but i do think there is a more like pernicious issue which you're pointing to which is this idea that like realism and like climate oriented like non-traditionally realist fiction um, like have no Venn diagram in the public imagination or that like mm-hmm. even any, even like, even just like a climate apocalypse novel couldn't be like realist fiction is really bizarre. Like we're living in a climate apocalypse. It's just that you maybe aren't living in a part of the world where that's part of your, <laughs> your right. daily reality. So then you really end up with like, okay, well, like we're really looking at what a certain readership in like a white Western audience um, living in certain parts of the world thinks is um, not plausible or, mm-hmm. you know, science fictional in the sense that um, it's an imaginative exercise or like it's a thought exercise, but it's like certainly not um, like a lived reality. Um, and then I come up against this idea that like, okay, does it seem like 
we're just outsourcing dystopia somewhere else um, because we can't, um, we, meaning people who live where I live, for instance, like, um, yeah, because we can afford to outsource it because <laughs> it's not happening right here. And I think the pandemic um, made a lot of people question those here versus there separations. Yeah, the uneven distribution of those kind of realities um, coming to fruition is something that I think... Yeah. Yeah. Um, also, lots of people have lived through an apocalypse already. Um, <laughs> yeah, and they're here to report back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. totally. <laughs> um, I have read uh, a lot of your criticism and essays. Um, I read Oval back in, was that 2019 that it came out? I, yeah, that's I when know. it came out. It's been a Yes. Minute. I read it when I lived in Austin, Texas. So it was before, it was back then. Um, <laughs> I loved that. And I was really excited to read Death by Landscape. And so I'm really curious about your thoughts about a lot of things, but I wanted to close up by asking you about your perspective on time travel, if you would entertain this. And I, and I mean both, uh, whether, <laughs> however you want to talk a little bit about it, uh, either in terms of physics, if that's interesting to you, or as a trope in a literary or kind of cinematic entertainment in, in genres and things. I'm just very curious, um, how you kind of think about time travel. Well, I will start by saying that I would love to write a time travel travel novel but I'm I really struggle with chronology and cause and effect <laughs> and so like <laughs> part of uh -huh. actually a lot of what I'm dealing with in the book is about like the the weird um aspects of existence being um or the eerie ones to use Mark Fisher's mm -hmm. term being kind of beyond yeah. cause and effect or like the space where you can't actually tease out what you know what was the instigator versus what was the um instigated yeah. um mm -hmm. and i think that i'm very much in the weird fiction realm because i'm really not not particularly good at chronological happenings in that sense um or sort of like um the kind of yeah the the protagonist plot where like um you know or the trauma plot where something happens to a person and then that affects them later in their life and then you know the part of the narrative the narrative's driving factor is the big reveal of what happened back in their life to cause this thing in the present or uh -huh. you know so there's there's kind of like this um like structural inability i have to like, <laughs> to write my own time travel but i will say that um the kind of time travel that i do do in the book is through looking at medieval manuscripts mm -hmm. which is my absolute favorite kind of communion with the past <laughs> uh -huh. and through you know the the act of which um um taught me a lot about um i guess um understanding someone else's lived experience through um material traces or mm -hmm. um yeah, yeah yeah objects as communion devices um and there's something very very magical and very science fictional about that um that you might hold a book that someone a thousand years ago was holding mm -hmm. and that it might have their tears and blood all over it yeah. because of their experience reading the book, which, you know, maybe they weren't even reading it the same way as me because maybe they couldn't read and the book was just an object for them. And yeah. you know, that object was a different kind of communion device. I mean, books have gone through so many transformations over the centuries and the way we read has changed so much. Um, and I think that, yeah, I think of reading um, in that sense as a very powerful kind of time travel. Yeah, and there's you mentioned Fisher, and I think that the I I after reading the weird and the eerie, I kept thinking about the sort of notion of 
kind of what you're hinting at of this, this presence of an absence, like that you know that something was there before, but it should be is not. But this eeriness that's kind of comes from encountering places like that. And I think that uh, I was trying to wrap my head around time travel in relationship to like sites with memories and like standing weird places, mm-hmm. like standing in uh, like Confederate battlefields are really weird. Yeah. Like they have a weir- or like uh, Hollywood Cemetery in Richmond, Virginia mm-hmm. um, is like a, there it's a it's kind of a dark vibe right like and you sort of feel this I mean it's an absence but you feel this presence really pronounced and I always think about like oh well is that um then am I sort of like experiencing like the growing block universe like is like the past and the present Mm -hmm. exist but there's no future yet and then I'm trying to get (laughs) around it but but then I think about a wormhole and then I'm like well if I could go to the future through a wormhole that's weird then right because that reorients my understanding of the physical properties of the universe yeah Yeah. (laughs) but the chronology thing is very funny and i think that there you could i think what you could do if you wanted to you you, i feel like you would knock this out of the park you could write (laughs) you could write a time travel novel make it just like really convoluted and weird and (laughs) hard to get to so that completely obtuse (laughs) because there are a lot of people who would love nothing more than to like draw the infographical charts of like how it works like i'm obsessed with watching or looking at people's illustrations of like why the movie primer makes sense yes, or something i know? love those too i spent <laughs> a lot of time so with that because ultimately i'm like they got you like this doesn't make sense <laughs> yeah i mean we'll look at from that sense like yes i could certainly write one of those i'm just teasing but that's <laughs> i am really really into people's kind of like obsessive things about those chronologies because it is yeah the the kind of the causal loops or like the paradoxes that you like paint yourself into a corner with or something like that is so funny trying to structure one of those things and there's plenty of people who love to like go and be like "Mm, excuse me (laughs) (laughs) yeah Um, well that's what you're inviting if you write time travel you're just i feel like it you're inviting daring creating fans before you even finish who are gonna something wrong (laughs) oh cool well thank you so much for spending some time with me today um where should people go if they want to keep up with your work and what you're doing next? Well, I guess they should go to Evil Google, and um, <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately, they can, you uh-huh. know, um, I would say they can write me a letter, but they wouldn't even know how unless they Googled me first. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, you can go straight to my website, lvpw.com, and bypass Google. There you go. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Um, Death by Landscape is a great book. I can't recommend it enough. Um, people can get it from Soft Skull Press directly through the website. They've got some links on there, so you don't have to get it through Amazon if you don't want to. Please don't if you can yeah, avoid it. Try to do it a different way. <laughs> <laughs> we try our best. Um, and thank you so much for talking to me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Um, and to everybody out there, we'll see you next time. You are-